Bible says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And he said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, What seest thou? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is toward the north. Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north, and evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come, and they shall set every one his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all the walls thereof round about, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. May God bless his word. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, we are so very grateful for uh, the opportunity to, to gather together, to sit under your word, to study the scriptures. Father, we thank you that it is through the expounding of the scriptures that you build your church, that through the teaching, the equipping uh, of the saints, that the more studious, the more we study your word, the more we dig into your word, the more we grow, the more we become equipped to minister to others. And so, Father, I pray that tonight you would help us as we study the Scriptures to understand first what you were saying to Israel and Judah, specifically through this prophet Jeremiah so long ago. And then, Father, help us who live in really such a time as Jeremiah lived. And help us, Lord, to make the application uh, as you wanted your people to wake up. Back in that day, uh, we know that today that same call for the church to wake up and that we would understand the gravity of the situation, and that we would get serious about our walks with you, and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Faith Promise sheets, slips on the back table. We'll be collecting them for the next few weeks uh, and prior up until uh, our annual business meeting where we will uh, look at our mission situation based on uh, what God leads you to give. So you pray about that. Uh, there's an explanation of what Faith Promise is uh, on a sheet in the back. I addressed it this morning briefly, uh, but we'll keep these out for the next couple of weeks and encourage you to do that also want to invite you to join us for our prayer meeting. Uh, those of you online as well, uh, you just need to get an invitation. And if you email the church, we will put you on our uh, email list to get an invitation. It has been a blessing to me because um, one, one Wednesday I was away and Charlie was doing the, uh, the prayer meeting. And he changed it up a little. I think based upon the counsel of some godly woman that he knows. <coughs> And, uh, and so we have been doing it that way ever since. And it has been a blessing. If you've been a part of it, uh, it has just been such a sweet thing um, to, to hear just all the saints praying and being together. It's just been a blessing. And uh, we would love you to be a part of it. You don't have to be a church member. Uh, you know, just let us know who you are. Send us an email. And we, we do this every Wednesday night. And there's people who join us that... Um, are not here, 
because of various reasons. They watch the service online, so that's their time to interact with us. And it has been just a big blessing. Charlie, Lynn, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you very much. All right, Jeremiah chapter 1. Uh, we're today, tonight we're at verses 11 through 16. And uh, we already saw Jeremiah's call, and now we're moving into this passage. Uh, let me give you the outline, and then we'll just jump right in. There's three things we're going to see tonight uh, based on verses 11 through 13, and then 14 through 16. First of all, we see Jeremiah's first vision. He sees a vision, and this would be a way in which God would often communicate to his people through the prophets, and he would use images or events, oftentimes just things of nature that had happened, that these people were so familiar with, but it's something they can grab hold of and correspond the truth to what God is saying. And he does that through Jeremiah's first and second visions, which we're going to look at tonight. And then, so we see Jeremiah's first vision of the almond tree. Then we see Jeremiah's second vision of a boiling pot or a boiling cauldron. And then thirdly, we see the explanation of why God is communicating. These two visions are related, and they're speaking of the coming judgment that we've already talked about. And God gives specifics in that second vision of the boiling cauldron of where Judah can expect the trouble from. Uh, and we will see the fulfillment of it long down the road in chapter 39 uh, as what he is prophesying here will be fulfilled, just as God said. That will be down the road. But today, today we look at that, uh, and then the last part, verse, the last few verses, is why is God doing this? And he, gives, he makes it very clear. This is why I'm bringing judgment upon you. Uh, you are a covenant people. We have entered into a covenant together. And uh, you've broken that. You've not worshipped me. You've worshipped idols. You've worshipped the work of your hands. Uh, and therefore, uh, you are, are removing the blessing. And so let's jump in. First Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 11. The Bible says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod, and that would be like a, a shoot or a twig, a rod of an almond tree. Then saith the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. What does that mean? An almond tree, there's a sprout that comes, a branch comes out of an almond tree. And he says, yep, you've seen it well, and I am going to fulfill uh, my word. I'm going to hasten my word to perform it. Well, it's interesting um, that the almond tree was very common. If you remember, Jeremiah is from Anathoth. Uh, and to this day, uh, almond trees are bountiful in that place. And the almond tree is the very first tree to sprout in the spring. So there's been a long dormancy of winter, darkness, no, you know, the, the greenery hasn't come out. And the very first tree in Palestine during this time in this area would be the almond tree. And this is going to be a fulfillment. Now here's, here's the amazing thing. <coughs> because there's, as you know, the, the Old Testament was not written in English. In fact, English was not around. Uh, even when the New Testament was written, English was not around. 
so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, mostly Hebrew, some Aramaic, and then of course the New Testament was written in Greek. But the Amatry, let me read a, a quote from a lexicon, because there is a play in words in the Hebrew. There's some significance of the Hebrew. In fact, earlier on, I had this in my notes, but I didn't get to it last time, when in verse 10, I think this was, yeah, this was last week. It says, See, I have set thee this day, I set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down. In the Hebrew, there is a play on words here with the phrase root out, one Hebrew word, and pull down, another Hebrew word. And the two words are almost identical with one change, of course, giving completely different meaning. And it is part of the poetic cadence of the Hebrew translation of verse 10 that we don't get in English. And the same is true for this text here that we're talking about the almond tree. And let me read to you from this lexicon. Almond tree is the translation of the Hebrew word shaket, which literally means awake. The Hebrew word for watch is shaked, one, one is, there's like a slight difference in each one. They're almost even pronounced the same. So the, the Hebrew word for watch and the Hebrew word for um, almond tree are very, very similar. And the symbol of awakeness, this lexicon writes, the, the symbol of awakeness befitted God's word. For though his people had settled into a dark, cold sleep of spiritual dearth, his word was ever awake, watched over by him, that's God, bringing about its daily unfiltered fulfillment of sovereign design. I want to read that again. This is incredible. If you think about this. The, um, again, he says, the symbol of awakeness befitted God's word. For though his people had settled into a dark, cold sleep of spiritual dearth. And that, I think, describes much of Christianity today in the the day that you and I live. Despite this, His Word was ever awake. I love this. I'm just picturing, you know, no matter what happens around this book, and sometimes you just look at the history that you've been alive. Sometimes... There are revivals. We read about them in America, in England. There have been revivals. And sometimes even small movements of God where God's people seem to awaken to righteousness and get on fire for God. And then there's other times when they fall into a deep slumber. But again, His Word is ever awake, watched over by Him, bringing about its daily unfiltered fulfillment, unalterable fulfillment, of sovereign design. In other words, no matter what's going on around this book with the church, God's people, whether they're awake and and on fire and hungry to hear it, or whether they're asleep and lethargic and apathetic to what's in here, this book is ever awake. And the God uh, of heaven is watching over it Bringing about, again, its daily unalterable fulfillment. In other words, this book, it reminds me of Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick, it's alive, it's powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This book is alive. No matter what the church around it and the church you know, that represents the church that comes from it is doing spiritually, whether they are in a time of winter darkness or whether they're on fire, this book is 100% alive. And you remember that. If you want to be alive and on fire for God, it's going to be through His Word. And so here, here in Jeremiah's time, the Jews of Judah were in a deep slumber spiritually. They indeed were. And so God sent them a man, Jeremiah, to proclaim truth. And, and what an encouragement that must have been as well to Jeremiah. And so he uses this picture of a, the, the first branch of an almond tree as a sign with a play on words. And in fact, one commentator made the idea that um, the almond tree was known as the waker or the watcher. Um, and so here, God is challenging Jeremiah that with this idea is, is Judah, wake up! Wake up! I'm coming! I'm getting ready to judge Israel. In fact, the next picture, the next little illustration of a boiling cauldron is going to tell you how I'm lining things up and planning on judging you if you don't get right with me. If you don't honor our covenant and get back into a relationship with me. He's challenging them. He's stirring them to wake up. And he's using this beautiful, simple illustration. Again, almond trees were so abundant. And as he was preaching, everyone that heard this challenge and knew the play on words, this was a call for them to wake up. And using the wake up tree, you know, similar in words, to exhort them. You know, it is so awesome. And God would do this often. In fact, Amos, who had come earlier with basically prophesying the same thing a little earlier, he would also, in Amos chapter 8, very similar, um, he, would, he saw, he had a vision of God of a basket of summer fruit. And the, again, in Hebrew, the, the Hebrew word that is translated summer fruit is synonymous with another Hebrew word for the end. And God is using this play on words in Amos chapter 8 to challenge His people. The end is coming if you don't get right. And He uses these pictures. We need pictures. I, I'm convinced we do. Uh, illustrations. Uh, I appreciate what Charles Spurgeon wrote in his lectures to my students. His whole chapter on illustrations and the proper use of illustrations. And he likens it. I've never forgotten this. And I'm still trying to master it. Illustrations can help so wonderfully. And as I can tell you from experience, they also fall flat on their face sometimes if you don't use the right, you know, our illustrations are just, you know, man's guess. But listen to, what, listen to the way Charles Spurgeon explained it. He said, illustrations, I'm just giving you a summary of this whole chapter in his book. Illustrations are like windows. He's challenging preachers, young preachers. It should let light in, not keep it out. It should add to the interest and beauty of the whole. 
window, he's talking about windows in a house, and just as windows benefit a house, so illustrations can let light in, help us to understand things. Have you ever heard a really good illustration that, that brought home a truth like you'd never heard before? Like you knew the truth, you knew the scripture, and when you heard an illustration that went with it, it just, it just clicked, it's like, I got it now. And that's the way Spurgeon. So the, uh, also, illustrations or windows should let in fresh air to keep people awake. They should not be too numerous, lest the house collapse. That's, that's a good one. They are meant to be looked through, not at. Man, that's good. And by the way, Jesus Christ was the master illustrator. You know, his parables, you know, this is like this. He, he, obviously, Jesus Christ never used an illustration and th- then thought, oh man, that was, I'm not using that one again. He never did that. That's just amazing to me. Spurgeon probably did, but his illustrations are phenomenal. Uh, anyway, it should also be fitting to the structure and purpose of the whole. Illustrations should be clean, not dirty. And he says, vulgarity has no place. And then he says, windows or illustrations should not be cracked or broken. Or broken. He talks about mixed metaphors and all kinds of things. But he just gives this very fluent, very elegant idea of how important windows are. Illustrations or images. And that's how God communicated to the prophets. It, he would be able, this way he would be able to drive the point home. For example, if Jeremiah didn't get it, as far as this, this fig tree, if Jeremiah didn't understand the play on words and, and understand what the message to be communicated, he never would have been able to turn around and then give a, a good, accurate prediction of what God is saying. So it helped him understand it, and now he was giving it to Israel. Uh, so, the waker. A waker. What is a waker? A waker, folks, today is an alarm clock. You ever notice how unpopular alarm clocks are? I've heard of people smashing their alarm clocks. I've heard of people throwing their alarm clocks across the room. Uh, I've heard of people getting rid of their alarm clocks. And, uh, you know, alarm clocks can be very annoying, uh, but they are important. We could just view them as interrupters, you know, because they're interrupting a good sleep. But here, God is giving an alarm to the people of God, the people of Judah, because they have forsaken Him. And they are in a deep slumber spiritually. And I see a lot of similarities to what's going on in our country and in, just across the world. Spiritual interest, God's people, we are so preoccupied. In fact, listen to some of the parallel exhortations in the New Testament for God's people today to wake up. I'll just give you them. You can write them down. You don't need to turn there. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. Romans 13, 11 and 12. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Wow, isn't that a good challenge? 1 Corinthians 15.34 Awake to righteousness and sin not. 
For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Again, awake to righteousness and sin not. You know, when God's people are spiritually asleep and not awake spiritually, they're living a life that is not being salt and light, and therefore the people around them are receiving no witness of their need of being saved. And that's why it's connected. That's why Paul says, awake to righteousness and sin not. And then he says, which almost seems not to... It's like, well, what does that have to do with awaking and sinning not? For some have not the knowledge of God. But they are very connected. Because again, if the church is in slumber, then the church is not being salt and light. And then he says, I speak this to your shame. And the New Testament church today needs to heed that. And then finally, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Beloved, America and God's people need to wake up. We need to pray for revival. We are, by the way, just so you know, we are not experiencing a revival right now. Okay, just so you know. We need a revival. We need a stirring of God's people because the implications... <laughs> excuse me. <coughs> Thank you. I'm fine. I am over my cold. Uh, I have some. Thank you. In fact, maybe I'll drink it. Thank you, tell Oh, water is so awesome, isn't it? I have... Uh, what's called reflux that causes me to cough. That's, that's what I'm dealing with. And I just started taking medication that they said would take two to three weeks to work. So I'm fine and I'm not spreading anything. Although I notice most of you are sitting way far back. That's fine. But beloved, just so you know, we need, we need revival. Uh, there's a book. In fact, I need to get it out. This, I've read this book twice. When I first got saved, it was the, my experience. It was called Why Revival Tarries. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill. Uh, and he doctrinally isn't where we are completely, but man, do we need to be stirred to revival. But the problem is, if you don't know you're asleep, then there's no understanding that you need to wake up. Um, we had an experience years ago. Um, my first experience with room darkening shades or room darkening curtains. We, went, went to a, we were on vacation in the Poconos. And all of our house, in all of our houses, we don't have room dark, or we did not have at that time room darkening shades. And I don't know how you are. I am a light sleeper. And as soon as light comes in in the morning, I'm up. How many of you can sleep? Well, Dave has to because Dave has such a weird schedule. How many of you can sleep even if it's light out? Okay, a bunch of you can. I cannot. And uh, you know, as soon as even no matter when I get to bed, if the lights, if the light comes in, I'm awake. And so here we are, we're at this resort, or we're, at this, we're on vacation, and we had a problem with, I think it was our heater, or air conditioning unit, whatever it was. And, we're, and we talked to the maintenance people, we talked to the front desk, and they were going to have someone come by the next morning to fix it. And the lady said, would you like a wake-up call? And I said, sure. I'd never had a wake-up call before. You know, they're going to call you on the phone and wake you up. I said, Sure. And I think, Mayor, do you remember if it was at 11 o'clock? Yeah, it was 11 o'clock. 
that they were going to come by. And I guess I was planning on staying up late. So, um, so the phone rings in the morning. And I'm like, I'm, it woke me out of a dead sleep. And I answered the phone groggily. And she says, hello, Mr. Lyon, Mr. Front Desk. Just giving you your wake-up call. I said, I didn't want it till 11. She said, it is 11. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? I had never, uh, you know, I'd never slept that late because it was completely, they had the room darkening curtains. I mean, it was pitch black. And when she said it was 11 o'clock, I couldn't believe it. And you open the curtain and whoa, it is. Light is so very powerful. And the church needs light today, does it not? <coughs> second, Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah chapter 1. The second vision of Jeremiah is a boiling cauldron or a pot. Verse 13, Jeremiah 1, 13. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, What seest thou? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is toward the north. Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north an evil shall break forth all the inhabitants of the land. So this was the second vision, which was a challenge. <coughs> it was really what was happening. The first one was just a call, uh, kind of like, okay, this Jeremiah's ministry, and what characterizes his ministry is a call for God's people to wake up. And now the second was actually what God was planning on doing. He just sees a boiling cauldron. Uh, they had probably seen that many times. I still remember when we went to Liberia that uh, the ladies would do all the cooking in the, in the middle of the village or wherever the place was, and they'd have these huge pots. And they just, and with these big things, they were stirring, uh, Gore, what was that stuff called? The white stuff, the um, fufu? Was, it was fufu. Fufu. Okay, they were, they were, they were stir, stirring the fufu, and there were these huge. <clears throat> Excuse me. When I think of cauldrons, that's what I think of. And here, there's a cauldron that's boiling. Um, a seething pot. Which, by the way, in the Bible, God's judgment is described as something like something simmering. God is a long-suffering God. And so when God is provoked... It's, and he speaks about, you know, you look at how much, the, some of the terms that describe anger, God's anger, God's wrath, and it is communicated as, you know, it's, it's like imagine the steam building up slowly. Praise God, we have a God that is long-suffering and that doesn't blow his top at any trigger. But, and, and so here he's letting them know way ahead of time, you know, there's something boiling here. There's something in the works. And then it pours out. And the picture of this text is that it's, it's pouring out from the north, going south. And it is a prophetic utterance of how God is going to judge Israel. Now it's interesting because many, if not most, of Israel's troubles uh, originally had come from the north over the centuries. The Philistines, the Assyrians... Uh, the Arameans, uh, really the north was a symbol of dark powers and uncertain or, you know, origin, what's going to happen. But this was, and, and it was already in the making, the Chaldeans, now if you ever heard, 
the phrase the Chaldeans, it's referring to Babylon. And Babylon was, you know, God was preparing to raise up Babylon. And although, if you're familiar with the layout of the geography of Israel and Judah specifically, Babylon was actually to the east. But because of the, what was it, the Arabian, the desert, a big desert. The Arabian desert. So because of that, they would have to come around that, and then they would actually come from the north. And that's where Israel often over and over again, and soon to be, would be attacked from the north, from Babylon. And it was already anticipated, and now they have this picture of a boiling cauldron that's going to spill over and pour down from the north to the south. And it is a prediction of God's judgment. And it was given years before it would actually happen. You know, I'm reminded over and over again, Romans chapter 2, Revelation, where, where God gives people space to repent. That is an amazing truth. That God is not a a knee-jerk reactor that, uh, boy, you step out of line and he's going to judge you right away. God is so patient. And here he's letting Israel know. And he's sending them their final warning through Jeremiah. He's already sent multitudes of prophets. Would they listen? You heard me say, chapter 39 of this book, we'll get there eventually. It happens. It's It's already happened. They've already been judged. They did not heed the warning. Uh, And I'm sure if we could talk to many of them, uh, right as the judgment fell, they they would have wished that they could have had one more chance. Just a little more time when they realized that God was serious. How about America? What about America? What kind of judgment do we deserve? And So many people, I think the fact that people are offended that we would speak of the fact that we deserved God's judgment shows you how little people understand about a holy God and and how little respect they have about a holy God. I heard, just this week, I heard about a book that uh, an atheist wrote, and I wish I'd written it down. I really wanted to write. The book, he wrote a book, and it was... Um, something about the fact that God hates you and you should hate Him. Now that's interesting. I want you to think about it. An atheist wrote a book called God Hates You and Why You Should Hate Him. An atheist wrote that book. Now you know what an atheist is, right? An atheist is someone that doesn't believe in God. And he's writing a book called Why God Hates You and, and You Should Hate Him. <laughs> I mean, wait a minute, what's wrong with that picture? But um, it's such a misunderstanding uh, of our God. Yes, our God is holy and He hates sin. And if He hated you so much that you should hate Him, He never would have sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross. But He did. And so you cannot say that God hates you when He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. How bad are things in America? Do I need to tell you? 
Um, there, it's interesting. There is. A, I don't know. If, I don't think I've ever mentioned this from the pulpit. Have you ever heard of the Babylon Bee? The Babylon Bee. How many of you have heard of the Babylon Bee? Okay, a couple of you have. Uh, it is now more popular online than the Onion. And you know how popular the Onion is, right? I, I never heard of the Onion, but apparently the Onion was a popular satirical website. Well, now the Babylon Bee is the number one satirical website. Uh, from evangel- they're from Christians, born-again believers. Uh, so many of the themes have to do with things that would interest us. And it's all sarcasm. It's all, and it's very funny sarcasm. It's very, if, it, it, in fact, you'll hear, if, you, if you're a part of Facebook, you'll see people posting articles, and they're, they're designed to kind of grab your attention. And sometimes people will start going, I can't believe that, because they don't realize it's satire, it's a joke. Here, let me give you some example. In fact, somebody somebody said that um that the because you know they're just making these funny little things that don't exist, and the, the, they make these and twenty of the things they've said, twenty of the headlines have actually come true. And uh, it, it, some of these, one or two of these, are one of them. But here's here's some of their headlines. Two plus two equals four. Insists close-minded bigots. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Insists close mind bigot. And then on, that was on May 9th, 2017. That was their title. And then the USA Today came out with an article in the next year. Is math racist? Here's another example. This is, this is I love this one. Man's baptism overturned after instant replay reveals he was not fully submerged. <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know, maybe that's just because, you know, I'm a Baptist and all of it. There have been so many times when we've been baptizing that uh, I'll see an elbow stick out or something and I'm like, oh no, you know, I don't want to drown the person, but I want to make sure they're fully immersed. Uh, here's another one. And this was one of the ones that they, they said in the fulfilled. California bill prohibits stores from selling toys that don't actively confuse children's sexuality. That's supposed to be a pun. That was in... February of 2020. In October of 2021, here's another article, not from the Babylon Bee, but a fulfillment. Toys are they? California law requires stores to have gender neutral areas for kids. And so here was, here's, here's how bad it is. The USA Today, in March of 2020, named Rachel Levine as the Woman of the Year. Now, some of you know Rachel Levine was a man, um, and now, I forget what his name was, but he was born biologically, and the chromosomes haven't changed at all. Richard? Okay. Um, And so, again, USA Today named him Woman of the Year, which is an insult to women everywhere. So the Babylon Bee (laughs) fired back, with this, this one, um, Babylon Bee's Man of the Year is Rachel Levine. Twitter was not amused. They locked the Babylon Bee out of Twitter. They have been banned from Twitter. And they sent a message to Twitter, delete the joke and you can have your account back. And they refused. And so they have they've been, they, the, the writer said, we have been in Twitter incarceration for eight months. Because of this politically correct, correct hypersensitivity, 
you know, I think we start need to getting a little hypersensitive about offending God. Because there's a God in heaven who is being provoked by our foolishness. What's the... Here's another farce. I wrote it down for this morning. Excuse me? Respect for marriage act? How about disrespect for marriage act? You see, God's the one that has defined marriage very clearly. And folks, I know, there's no doubt based on what he said, he is highly offended by our redefinition, not just of, of marriage, of genders. Of, we are just turning truth on its head. What does the Bible say? Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. And that would describe America today. So let's real quickly go back to Jeremiah chapter 1. So God is already predicting uh, what's going to happen. Look at verse 15, Jeremiah 1.15. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come. And they shall set everyone his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem and against the walls thereof round about and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness. Here's why. Who have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods and worshipped the work of their own hands. Israel, the people of Judah, were a covenant people. They entered into a covenant with God. And so they had some specific responsibilities and challenges to have no other gods before me. This was so highly offensive to to God that the Jews who worshipped the only living true God who had demonstrated his superiority and reality down through history was now being replaced by the Jews' neighbors' idols. They'd look and say, oh, we want to have this God. We want to have this idol. And they forsook the living and true God. So God was getting ready to judge them. And He was going to do it through Babylon. In fact, the the specific, if you look at verse 15, uh, Lo, I will call the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come, and they shall sever everyone is thrown at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem. I want to close with this. Gates are very important in the Bible. Gates are extremely significant. Um, they, not only were gates uh, part of the city's protection against invaders, in Bible times they were the center, uh, the activity of, of, um, of their business transactions. They were done at the gate. The court trials, all the judicial trials were done at the gate. That was where things happened. Public announcements were made at the gate. Gates were incredibly significant. The first gate, the first thing that happened at city gates that are mentioned in the scriptures is in Genesis 19.1. It was the gate of Sodom that Abraham's nephew Lot greeted the angelic visitors. And uh, Lot and other leading men of the city were discussing the day's issues and engaging in important civic events. Another important one is Ruth. You remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? Boaz went to the elders at the city gates, the city gate, to discuss uh, that he, you know, and claim 
legally that he was the kinsman redeemer for Ruth, and that all happened at the city gate. When King David ruled Israel, uh, he would give instructions at the city gates. And then when his son Absalom died, he would mourn, and he left the city gates. And when he returned to the city gates uh, in 2 Samuel 19, it was a sign that the mourning was over and David was back in business. Uh, If somebody was going to conquer a city, it would often be said that they would conquer the gates. In fact, remember what Jesus said. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That means that all of Satan and his minions, all their plannings, all their machinations, you know, all everything that represents Satan is not going to prevail against the church. That is encouraging in our day. Let's pray. Father, help us. Thank you so much for allowing us to see these truths that uh, seem to be today's headlines. Uh, Lord, for a people, though we are few, a people across America, as churches are scattered, uh, true believers are scattered throughout this country, worshiping you, uh, many of them few in number, but understanding the seriousness of what's going on in our country. Uh, Father, multitudes of our brothers and sisters love America, and we are so burdened and so concerned when we understand what is happening. Uh, Father, we do not hate at all our fellow countrymen. Uh, We know that they are in deep trouble and they don't know it. We want to see them repent so they can get saved. Thank you, Lord, that they still can. Help us to be Jeremiah's, to be the watchman, to be the waker. Help us to be the alarm clocks to the waiting world. And Father, help the church to wake up and see their need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please take your hymn books out.